Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to to you, Lord Christ. Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning again, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us online. It's a delight to have you all. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you, for we pray in your Son's name. Amen. This is our second week in a summer sermon series on the book of Proverbs, which is about wisdom. And last week, Josh quoted Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rad. Why could my last name not have been Von Rad? I got frickin' Schmidt. But anyways, he said that wisdom is competency in regards to the realities of life. So wisdom is more than just intellectual knowledge, but not less than. It's more than morality as well, but not less. You can be a very knowledgeable person and not be wise. It makes you dangerous. You can be a, a, a moral person, a good person, and not be wise and that puts you in danger. But you can't be wise without being knowledgeable and good. So are you wise? Are you competent in regards to the realities of life? Because according to Proverbs, there are certain things about our world and about us in this world that are just true. They are absolutely true. And so reality is always inescapable eventually. So how in touch with reality are you? Season four of Netflix, their sci-fi horror series, Stranger Things, dropped several weeks ago. It's a very appropriate title, it seems to me, for our times. It seems to me that even like in the show, Stranger and Stranger Things continue to happen to us. And season four is set in 1986. And so OP clothing and guest jeans are in style and roller skating is cool. I know that's hard to imagine for many of you millennials, but it's actually cool. And, and going to the roller rink and playing air hockey on your roller skates while everyone watching you is really cool. I remember this. I was 11 years old, but season four of Stranger Things had a serious problem right after it dropped. Do you know what it was? The mass shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde happened right after the release of episode one. And episode one begins with a mass shooting at a school. And so Netflix immediately put a disclaimer at the beginning of episode one saying that the episode was in, had no direct connection to what happened in Uvalde. But is that true? Because even though they made that episode over a year before the mass shooting, they still thought that the mass murder of children would be something that their audience could handle and would even be drawn in by. And, and would want to watch even more because they assumed, apparently rightly, that it made sense to us. 
that it aligns for us with reality. And we have to ask ourselves, is that really reality? Is that the way that our world was originally made to be? And as we believe we'll someday be again, or is it a horror-like show example of how wayward and disconnected from reality that we've actually become? And Proverbs will ask us that question over and over and over again throughout the summer, not just about violence, but about our speech, about our money, about our sexual lives, about our work ethic, about our friendships. And the overall point is very simply, we need wisdom. Our world needs wisdom. And last week, Josh launched us off on this pursuit, preaching about what wisdom is. Today, we're going to consider how to get it. So three points this morning. We have to seek, we have to receive, and we have to fear. First of all, seeking wisdom. Chapter two, as was read for you by Joel, begins with a series of synonyms. It's actually quite common in Proverbs. So in verse two, we read, make your ear attentive and also incline your heart. And then verse three, call out, raise your voice. These are all synonyms for seeking, which is interesting because in chapter one last week uh, on which Josh preached, wisdom was the seeker. Wisdom was the one that cried out and raised her voice. Chapter one, verse 20 says, wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the marketplace, she raises her voice. At the head of noisy streets, she, wisdom, cries out. And what that's doing is it's emphasizing that wisdom is available for anyone. Anyone in this world can gain wisdom to some degree because wisdom is woven into the very fabric of our world. And what that means is that we know. We, we know. We know what is true and beautiful and good about what it means to be human, about what it means to live well in this world, what it means to be in relationship with others. We know what, it, what is right and what is wrong. We even know things about God. We know that he's real, and we know that he's present and active and engaged in this world, that he himself is knowable. We know it because everyone does. Everyone knows about God, truth, beauty, and goodness in this world and what it is to live well within it because it's crying out to us from beyond us. It's not self-projected. It's not self-generated. It cries out to us. Just like Psalm 19 says. Do you know Psalm 19? It begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night utters knowledge and wisdom. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. And that's talking about the reality of God pressing in upon us and revealing who God is and what he's like in and through the physical and material world. But we can say the exact same thing about wisdom. We can say the exact same thing, that wisdom is heard. We can't not hear it. We can't not see it. And so then if that's true, why aren't we wise? Why aren't we wise? We're not wise because of Romans 1 and what it says. Romans 1 is talking about the reality of God. But I think what it says about the reality of God is also true about wisdom. So take verse 19 there in Romans 1. You see it? You see the word God there? Sub in the word wisdom. That it says, for what can be known, sub in wisdom. It's plain to them because God has shown wisdom, has shown it to them. In other words, we see it, we hear it, we experience it. We can't not, but then look at the end of verse 18. What does it say? We also do what? We suppress it. We push it down deep within us into rarely visited parts of our consciousness. And so left to ourselves, apart from God, 
resisting him, running from him. We don't want it. We don't want what we can't not see. We don't want what we can't not hear. We want to be out of touch. We want to be disconnected from the reality that we know is all around us. As I often tell you, we want to run our hands against the grain of the universe and not with it, despite the difficulty, despite the pain, despite all of the sorrow that it doesn't. That's us. That's what we prefer. And why? Why? I don't know. I don't know. But that's what sin and the power of sin does to us. Makes us willfully deaf and stubbornly blind to reality. Stupid, literally stupid. You know where the word stupid comes from? Comes from a Latin word that simply means stunned or struck senseless. Reminds me of that quote that I mentioned to you several weeks ago from Will Rogers. Do you remember that quote? Sex about there are three men in the world. One that learns by reading, the few that learn by observation, and the rest have to pee on the electric fence for themselves. That's stupid. It's what it means to be struck senseless. Which is why back to Proverbs 2, verse 4 says, seek it. Seek wisdom. Seek it like a hidden treasure, like it's hard to find, because it is hard to find. Because in a foolish world, wisdom becomes the stranger thing. It's not just hard to find, it's hard for us to recognize. And so we have to search. And Proverbs assumes everyone's on a search, that everyone is on a search for something in this world, that there's, there's some goal, there's some primary thing that they're after. That's why there's so much path language in Proverbs. At the end of verse nine, it speaks about good paths. Chapter three, verse six, talks about our paths being made straight. How much do you want your path to be made straight? And this language is used throughout Proverbs because everyone's on a path and everyone is on a search and is being formed by that search, is being changed by that search. You can't stay the way you are in this world. You are always being changed. You're being formed right now, right now into someone who is wiser or more foolish right now. And, you're, and it's being done through little things, little things. We emphasize this at All Saints all the time because it has to be emphasized through seemingly little inconsequential daily actions in ordinary life. It's changing you into a different person through, through words that are said or words that are not said or swallowed or thoughts that are indulged or thoughts that are resisted or attitudes that are expressed or attitudes that are resisted and not expressed or squelched, little things. Tim Keller says it's in the little daily choices of life that they create the soul, the character upon which the big choices of life are eventually made, either wisely or foolishly. Little things each and every day form the soul that eventually are which and by which you make the big decisions of life. Bit by bit, step by step. So wisdom is sought for. Foolishness is sought for. It's found and it forms us, either one or the other. There's always a search. Which leads us also to the second point here, which is wisdom must be received. So Proverbs describes a search, but it's, it's not a frantic search. Did you notice that? It's, there's a level of patience here in the way that chapter two and chapter three speaks. Uh, there's something to do about commitment, stability, in other words. And that word stability is very, very important for me because I've read very deeply in the Benedictine monastic tradition. I've mentioned it to you before at times, but it's marked me. I'd say that because of the Benedictine monastic tradition, I'm still here 16 years after first coming to All Saints. Because 
the Benedictines, for thousands and thousands of years, they've done what we did this morning. They've exacted a vow from those who are going to enter into their order. And it's really just one vow, one threefold vow of stability, conversion, or change, spiritual change, internal change, stability, conversion, and obedience. And they emphasize that one part is not possible without the other two parts being a part of your life as well. And so, for example, they will say that personal, internal, spiritual change is not possible if everything outside of you is always changing. If all of the externals all around your life are always changing, you will not be able to change internally, spiritually within you. And think about our world and the way that our external world is constantly changing. We lean into that and we allow and even seek for all of the things outside of us to change. Do you know people? Maybe you are one of these people whose house is always changing, whose job is always changing, whose city is always changing or whose lover or friends are always changing or changing their clothes or their hair or their hobbies or their travel, always. Why? Why? Why so much change outside of you? Maybe it's because you don't want to deal with all of the necessary, more difficult internal spiritual change that you know needs to take place, but you just can't face it and deal with it. And so stability, staying put, keeping as much around you unchanged as possible. It's a prerequisite for actual significant spiritual internal change. And change, and this is really point two, will also never take place if you won't listen. If you will not listen, it will not take place. Wisdom, to be wise, we must become able and willing to receive another's word. In fact, it's so essential that not listening is a primary definition of a fool in Proverbs. And what is a fool? What's what's What is Proverbs considered a fool to be? It's right here in our text. Chapter three, verse seven. It says, a fool is someone who is what? Wise in their own eyes. Wise in their own eyes, refuses to receive or follow someone else's word. And and last week, Josh talked about two different Hebrew words that are both spoken of as people who are unwise. And one is translated simple, the other fool. But the simple, he said, is someone that is especially easily lured into going on and going along with the crowd, especially naive, inexperienced young people who always want to be with their friends. But guess what? They're not actual friends. They're just the crowd. There's a massive difference in Proverbs between true friends and the crowd. And this is a person who cares too much about what everyone else thinks. And they're swayed and swept along by what everyone else does. And they never learn to think for themselves to act for themselves, whether a child or an adult, and they end up living in an echo chamber of a foolish crowd's folly, doing the same stupid things that everyone else around them does with their time and their money and their words, their sexual lives and marriages. That's the simple. They care too much. Then a fool, as Josh told you last week, is wise in their own eyes. And they aren't swayed by the crowd or their friends. In fact, they probably don't have friends. And why? Because everyone around them is always wrong. Everyone else around them is always wrong. They're surrounded by a bunch of idiots who just need to listen to them. And this type of person doesn't care too much about what somebody else or other people think. They care too little. And the point is, they both don't listen. They're both out of touch with reality. One is in touch with the crowd. The other is in touch with themselves and their own pride and their own opinions but neither are in touch with reality. They're disconnected from it and from the words that could reconnect them. Look at the beginning of chapter two. How's it begin? My son, my son. 
It's how so many of the chapters in Proverbs begin. My son, listen. The images of a loving father, a loving mother attempting to set their child on a path that's going to lead them through the world as opposed to being caught up and eaten up by the world. And the first step down the path is listening. So how well do you listen? Do you listen? Are you listening to anyone? Chapter two says, receive my words. You notice that? Receive my commandments. Chapter three, verse one says, my teaching. Again, it's image of a mother or a father speaking to their child. And the background of Proverbs, the background of the entire Old Testament is the Torah. The Torah, the, the Pentateuch, the first four books of the Bible, the law of God given to Israel via Moses. That's the background. But Proverbs is the law of God or the word of God applied to daily life through someone else's wisdom, through someone else's words. And somebody who knows God, who knows his words, who, who's become wise through it, and they're looking at your life and they're saying, this is God's word, this is God's word, and this is your life. And there is a major gap in between it. And, and you have become disconnected. You are out of touch. Your drinking is out of touch with reality. Your words are out of touch. They're caustic. They're unkind. They're, they're manipulative. They're passive aggressive. Or the crowd that you're running with is killing you. Or the person that you're dating is not someone that you can marry. Or the way in which you go about work is not work. It's not work. You become a sluggard. Or you never take responsibility for your own life. You're always the victim. You're never the cause of your own problems in your life. And that's not true. That's not reality. You've got to come back into touch and reconnect with reality. And this, this right here, right now, is what you need to do. This is wisdom. This is what it means to be competent in regards to the realities of your life, which right now you're completely ignoring. So do you have anyone in your life who says those things to you, who is willing and able to say those things to you? And do you listen? Because if foolishness is being wise in our own eyes, what's wisdom? Wisdom is seeing your life, not simply from your perspective, but from the perspective of God's word as communicated and confirmed to you through the words of others. Multiple times throughout Proverbs, it says that with many counselors, there is much wisdom. So are you listening to God's word? Are you listening to God's word through those people that he's placed in your life whom you should trust and listen to? It's finally, third point. It's also through others that we usually begin to fear the Lord. So to become wise, we must fear. And what does that mean? For our text says that we seek wisdom. We will seek wisdom. Chapter two, verse four, if we'll seek it. And if we receive these words, chapter two, verse one, then chapter two, verse five says that we will understand the fear of the Lord. In fact, back in, in chapter one, verse seven, it famously says the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. And so fear is how you begin to turn, return to reality. And for so many years, that made no sense to me. It made no sense to me how fear could do this because it seemed to contradict so many other passages in the scriptures. Like chapter four of 1 John, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love does what? Cast out all fear. 
And even this verse that's on this bracelet here that I wear for my dear friend Kristen who has cancer is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, which says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-discipline. So how could what God does not give, fear, lead to that which he does give, which is wisdom? It made no sense to me. But here's how it makes sense. And that is there are different types of fear. There are multiple senses to our English word fear. And broadly speaking, there's a negative type of fear, and then there's a positive type of fear. And the negative type of fear is the fear of being harmed by someone or something that's more powerful than you, that has more power or strength than you. That is this, this emotion that sets off our parasympathetic nervous system and where we, we fight or we flee or we freeze. And in recent years, we've learned through doctors and through counselors that freezing is a common defense mechanism, particularly to abuse, especially sexual abuse. So many people who are sexually abused, they don't fight. They don't, they don't flee in that situation. They freeze up like a newborn baby deer or a newborn fawn in the wild. Have you ever seen them just freeze? That happens to so many. And this is not what the scriptures are saying that will lead to, to wisdom. Abuse is not the beginning of wisdom. It can't be. It's not as though God is saying, after I slap you around a little bit, then you'll actually shape up. And some of you have experiences like that. For some of you, that was your parents, whether physically or emotionally or verbally abusive. It's not, that's not what the Proverbs is saying. It's not God. Proverbs is talking about a positive type of fear that we could call awe. Verse five here, chapter two, we could read it and say, then you will understand the awe of the Lord and find intimacy with God. Because knowledge in the scriptures, it's always an intimate personal knowledge, never a, an abstract, simply factual one. So awe and intimacy, awe from intimacy, awe from being close. About nine months ago, I experienced this positive fear. I met one of my heroes, a man named Stanley Harawas, theologian, author, professor at Duke Divinity and, and, and Duke Seminary there. 20 or so years ago, I heard Stanley Harawas told a joke. It changed my life through one joke. He said the Lone Ranger and Tonto were surrounded by 20,000 Sioux in the Dakotas. And the Lone Ranger looked over at Tonto and said, this looks pretty tough, Tonto. So what are we going to do? And Tonto replied, what do you mean we, white man? Now, I don't even think I can tell that joke anymore, but that joke has been proven prophetic because now our culture is subdivided into innumerable we's, all of them set against one another. But even more importantly for me, that day in that conference, Stanley Harawas went on to say, a major part of my life and my work and my calling is to help people distinguish between the American we and the Christian we. And I don't think up until that time I ever did or even knew that I needed to, but it's absolutely essential. And so he changed my theology and he changed my life. And then about nine months ago, I was at a conference in Dallas with one of my dear friends who's an Episcopal priest, and they were hosting this conference, and Stanley Harawas was speaking. We were eating breakfast together in the conference room, and in walks Stanley Harawas. And my friend Thomas, who went to Duke, says, Stanley, this is my friend Tim. He's a Presbyterian. Would you still like to have breakfast with him? And he said, I don't know. Does this Presbyterian think I have a choice? Which is kind of funny. It's kind of funny. But I, was, I could barely even laugh, and why? fear, fear. I wasn't afraid Stanley Harawas was going to harm me. He's a pacifist. 
and he's 80 years old. He's the definition of meekness, which is power under the control of love, and he's gentle, and he's kind. And so my fear wasn't that he would harm me somehow, but that I would offend him, that I would dishonor or disappoint him. It's like carrying around a newborn baby. There's a fear involved. And it's not you're not afraid that that baby's going to harm you, but you're going to harm that which is so incredibly precious. So fear, this type of fear, is based upon the worth or the object of that person, that thing. It's all in the presence of true, real, undeniable worth. And what can give you that type of fear? Just the power of God, power of God alone? Like the, the Revelation 1 Jesus, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like a burnished brawn and whose voice is like the roar of many waters. And out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword and his sun shines like this, his face shines like the sun in the full day noon. Will that aspect of Jesus alone give you this fear? Remember when Jesus was approached by the soldiers, he just spoke and they were cast to the ground. Will that give you this fear? We would call that Dread. It's not this fear. Most people in the world, probably, if they're ever going to obey God, they obey God out of a negative fear, but that's not this. That's not wisdom. It's not our gospel. The gospel is that the same Jesus who spoke and knocked those soldiers to the ground allowed them to rise and allowed them to arrest him and allowed them to crucify and to kill him, to murder him on a cross for the forgiveness of the world's foolishness. And not only just the world's foolishness, but also yours, if you would believe in and follow him. That is all. It leads to wisdom. It leads to wisdom when God's power and his glory comes to us through his grace. There's a simple country song that I've been listening to for several weeks now. My son, Jake, who's at Camp Alpine for Boys, I think they've been listening to it. He sent it to me. And it's called Where I Find God by Larry Fleet. It's not profound. It's a very simple country song. It's not profound musically or even lyrically, but it has these opening lines. It says, the night I hit rock bottom, sitting on an old bar stool, he paid my tab and put me in a cab, but he didn't have to. But he could see that I was hurting. Oh, I wished I'd got his name because I didn't feel worth saving, but he saved me all the same. It's not just power, it's grace. And to God, you're worth saving. Because even as our passage ends, it says the Lord loves those whom he reproves. He delights in those that he disciplines. The last word in our passage here is delight because God delights in you. He delights in you. If you belong to Jesus, he delights in you. If you are made in his image and all of you are made in his image, he delights in you. And so if you would believe in and follow after him, whatever difficulty would come into your life, whatever proof would come to you via his word or via others. It's not to hurt you. It's not to harm you. It's to change you. It's to make you wise. Because God the Father gave God the Son for us to bear our death. So we know that he will give his Son to us in order that we might share in his life. And it's a life of wisdom. Wisdom for us is, us is a, not just a path. It's also a person. You have the person. You have the person if you belong to Jesus. You have him. And so now walk the path. Seek him. Receive his word. Receive it. Because he alone is worthy of our fear. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning that you would pour out your spirit upon us all. 
that we might know you, that we might follow you, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.